All right, welcome back to From Aid Arbitration. And this is an absolute disaster trying to get this episode up and running. My God. Uh, told you my formal A was going to come in and do an episode on opting. Well, last week I got the flu, so he couldn't come in. And uh, <clears throat> so now he's here today, and it's been about an hour and a half, two hours. We were trying to get this thing up and running, uh, started the podcast, and the computer just shuts down, starts updating, and takes forever. So it has been a chore trying to get this episode up and running. But hopefully everything's worked out, so here we are. Uh, I've got Jason Leith. He's in, in studio today. And he's gonna be, he's gonna be covering opting. I had uh, a few people reach out to me saying that they'd like to have an opting episode. Well, this is it. Uh, everything you're gonna want to know about opting is fixing to be covered. So get your pen and paper ready. Uh, Jason's uh, very well versed in opting. We deal with that a lot in this installation. He covers 16 stations, and one of the things that's uh, that's rampant in our installation right now is opting violations. So he's, he's very well versed in it. And, uh, I have complete confidence in him going to be able to handle this episode. So without further ado, here's Jason Leith and God willing, this episode is going to, is going to go off because it has been a disaster trying to get this thing going. So JB, it's all yours, brother. Have at it, and uh, let me know if you have any problems. Well, all right then, Corey. Uh, certainly do appreciate the uh, very generous introduction there. Uh, thank you for having me out here today. It's been a little bit of a difficulty. Glad he's feeling better. Back from underneath the weather. Got the studio, the luxurious studio, up and running. And maybe we can get this episode done here today. I also like to say thank you, uh, Corey, for a lot of the kind gestures and, and compliments that I've heard throughout the uh, episodes. You know, those are very kind things to say, and I appreciate that. Uh, and it's duly noted. And we've had some great, great arbitrations, some great case files, and, and we've had a good time along the way in doing so. And so I really appreciate those compliments. And full disclaimer, I'm not an expert in anything. But uh, have dealt with a lot of things, and uh, opting is one of those, and we're going to get into that. I've been very blessed, been very blessed to have some some great guidance. Um, very thankful for Corey and what he's been able to help me along with. I became a shop steward in 2016, brand new, didn't know a single thing, uh, didn't know where to start, and I met Mr. Walton at the very. Uh, second shop stewards meeting i believe and he introduced himself congratulated him me for being the newly shop steward at, at my station and gave me his number he said if you ever need anything don't hesitate i remember looking at him because i knew i was going to be calling and i said uh are you sure of course he looked back at me and if you know him he's like well i wouldn't have gave you my number so <laughs> i started calling him and, and we've been going uh, down this journey here for now five years and I, I can't thank him enough for the guidance uh, for the you know help in my development uh, it's been instrumental and there's been others but it just happened to be the the individual I met first so also been very blessed uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention 
Uh, about midway through 2017, I became the formal Step A representative for my installation. Uh, my installation encompasses 16 city stations. Uh, I have great stewards. I have really, really good stewards that um, put in the work. Uh, they're not scared to be the bulldogs on the workroom floor. Uh, when they file grievances, they put in the work. They utilize their time limits. They get the right information. Uh, they frame a good suggested remedy, uh, and they really, really do uh, an awesome job. And if there's any formal A representatives out there listening, uh, you know how instrumental and important that is when you get a case file from one of your stewards that you know does excellent work, that without even opening up in that file, you know it's in there. And it makes our job as a formal A representative uh, very easy. And so I'm very, very thankful for all my stewards. Uh, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't thank them because they, uh, along with me, along with our DRT members, along with our advocates, uh, this is a joint effort. And so just wanted to thank them. Thank all the individuals that help and try to make a wrong right. And at the end of the day, that's what a grievance is. It's a question that deserves an answer, win, lose, or withdrawal to our members, but it's making a wrong right. So getting started, Corey's asked me to come out here today and do a, an episode on opting. And he's right. Opting is something that we have dealt with tremendously in my installation. It is probably the second most grieved contract violation I have, uh, right below Article 8. Um, opting is one of those that, for whatever reason, seems to be a hot topic. I, I have my own opinion. Uh, my opinion is control. Uh, management loves to control. And we have a lot of CCA employees in my installation, and that's the majority of uh, my opting violations is with CCAs. And what greater employee to control than a CCA for management? They love to be able to drag these poor individuals around by their collar, send them here, send them there. Like I said, 16 stations in my installation, so they have a home station, but they can be worked in another station. So what greater control to be able to remove that person, send them to another station, and uh, have that control factor. Uh, that's my opinion. Um, they have definitely increased. They haven't slowed down. Matter of fact, in 2021, it ended up resulting in a little over $22,000 worth of monetary awards that went out to eligible employees who opted on an assignment, who got removed from that assignment, filed a grievance, and was awarded uh, a monetary award, $22,000, people. That, that is pathetic that we have letter carriers getting raked over the coals for a five-minute stationary event, but they're going to toss $22,000 in a calendar year in one installation that encompasses 16 stations out the window. Uh, that's embarrassing. That should never happen. But for whatever reason... We haven't got it to slow down. Uh, I told you we'll, we'll get into monetary awards and remedies in a little bit, but the monetary award that's established in my installation um, hasn't slowed it down. It hasn't caused a deterrent. It hasn't ensured any contract compliance, but I feel firmly, I firmly believe there's a number. Uh, 
there's going to be a number, and I tell my counterpart all the time, I'm going to find it. There's a number that's going to cause this to stop, to gain somebody's attention to the point where they say, do not violate their contractual bargaining agreement again in reference to opting. So we'll, we'll see how that goes, but that's how it's been in my installation. And so hopefully the information that I have here for you, again, I'm no expert. I have dealt with it a lot, but you have to be knowledgeable about what you're getting into. This is a contract grievance. It's not like discipline. Discipline, the burden of proof is on management. But in a contract grievance, that burden shifts to the union. And we must satisfy our burden of proof through knowing the violation that occurred, the contractual provisions it relates to, and support that with documented evidence. That's critical that goes into your case file to establish um, that you met your burden of proof. We want to get into the contract provisions and be knowledgeable of those. We want to get into our contract and we want to know those provisions from front to back. We want to know exactly everything there is to know about opting and be able to support that. So anytime an individual, new steward out there, former labor representatives, anytime that we have a contract provision that comes up and we need to gain knowledge of that, I always tell new individuals three things you need to have in your possession. You need to have your JCAM, need to have your defense to discipline, and your MRS. Those three things will get you started and will give you guidance on where to seek information about what you're trying to obtain. And when you get your JCAM, the very first thing I always tell them is go to your index. Because if you open it up in the beginning and you just start looking for anything about opting, it's going to be hard to find. But if you go to the index, and I'll be reading from the 2021 JCAM, but you go to that index and you look here on page Index 19. Right there is everything that's going to involve opting. It's going to give us our playbook. It's going to give us our guidelines to be able to know our contract provisions and what management should be required to do. So on 41, I mean on index 19, it's going to tell us that we're going to begin our little journey here on page 41-9. That's going to be an article 41-9. So the first thing we need to establish is what employees can opt. Who can opt on assignment? Not everybody can opt. Uh, whether you want to call it hold down, opting, they're one and the same. Opting and hold down means the same thing. It means that uh, when an eligible employee qualifies and an anticipated vacancy occurs and they exercise their right to opt on an assignment, hold it down, you then effectively become that carrier. If Mr. Walton is going on vacation and I put in that I would like to hold his uh, route down or opt on his route, I will be Mr. Walton in his absence. That's what holding down an assignment means, opting on an assignment. It means you become that individual. Doesn't give you all the guarantee rights. We'll get into that, but that's what it means to opt slash hold down. But we got to find out what employees are eligible to opt because, again, not all employees are. Get into this contract information and let's get knowledgeable about the employees who can and cannot opt on assignments. 
We're going to start with Article 41, Section 2B3. 2B3 and 2B4. That's going to give us guidance on eligibility for opt-in, employee classification who can opt. And it states, it provides a special procedure for exercising seniority and filling temporary vacancies and full-time duty assignments. This procedure called opting allows carriers to hold down vacant duty assignments on regular carriers who are on leave or otherwise unavailable to work five or more days. And those individuals are full-time reserve, full-time flexible, and unassigned full-time letter carriers are the employees that may opt on vacancies of fewer than five days where there's an established local past practice. Now it states full-time reserve letter carriers, full-time flexibles, and unassigned regulars, regardless of their reason for being unassigned. Okay? It states there on 41-10, right there down towards the bottom, all unassigned regulars have opting rights, regardless of the reason for the unassigned status. So as a steward, don't be fooled by management. Don't be fooled when you go to start investigating a grievance when you say, well, unassigned regular Joe was removed from, uh, was denied his opportunity to hold down assignment. Well, his unassigned status is different because he transferred in and he's an unassigned regular. Don't be fooled by management. Trust me, people, when you start investigating a contract grievance, little different than discipline. Discipline, they give you the information they relied upon. If they win, they win. If they lose, oh, well, we'll try to fire them again another day. Contract grievance, when you start investigating a contract grievance, managements get real skittish because they know if they lose and they've done something wrong, there's usually a remedy to that, a remedy that may involve money may involve uh, leave. So don't let management dissuade you in investigating your grievance. Don't, don't believe what management says when they tell you things. If management tells me something, I'll listen, but I'm going to verify it. If they tell me they have something, a, a policy or an SOP that states something different than RJ Cam, I want it. Go get it for me. Let me see it. Because my J Cam says... In clear, unambiguous language, regardless of their unassigned status, regardless for that reason why they're unassigned. So that means every unassigned regular has the right to hold down or opt on a vacant assignment. Okay? CCAs. That's addressed in 41.2b4. All right? CCAs may opt for hold down assignments. That's probably going to be, if your installation or your station is like mine, the CCA employee is probably going to be the most violated employee classification. I have unassigned regulars in my installation. I have CCAs. I do not have any part-time flexibles, um, but CCAs are 98% of opting violations that occur here. And again, I think that's because of control. Management loves to control, and when a CCA exercises that right, they lose it. They don't have as much flexibility. They still have a right to manage, but they lose some of their flexibility in the way they go about it. So again, that's the individuals 
that qualify to be able to exercise an opt or a hold down. It also gives us our pecking order, okay? The pecking order on how these things will be awarded, right? First, it gives us the full-time reserve. It gives us any unassigned regular. Those are full-time employees. They have seniority, right? So when it comes down to who will or will not get an opt, seniority is what prevails, is the determining factor there. Now, my installation is absent any of any LMOU. So we'll talk about that in a minute when we start getting into how do I find out about an opt. But vacancies or opt assignments that qualify, when an individual learns of it, if I have two people put in for it, one may put in a week early, one may put in a week late. But whoever has the most seniority when the anticipated duration starts, that is the individual that will be awarded the opt in my installation. It's the pecking order. Full-time reserve, any unassigned regular. They are full-time employees that have seniority and are ranked first in the pecking order. Then you have your part-time flexible employees. Okay? Part-time flexible employees are right there in the middle. These individuals also have seniority. Right? CCAs have what's called relative standing, but full-time employees and part-time flexible employees have seniority. So they're right there beneath the full-time reserve and the unassigned full-time regulars. Then lastly comes our CCAs, and they have relative standing. If you have multiple CCAs in your station, that would come down to their relative standing of who would be awarded that op. Again, absent any LMOU, we're going by the bare provisions of Article 41. It would come down to relative standing at the day the anticipated duration would start. I was talking to you a minute ago by don't be buffaloed by management. Don't be fooled. Management's going to tell you a lot of things. And when reading our JCAM, when we're reading the eligibility for opting, and we're going down through these provisions, we see different things as far as the any unassigned regular. But it also states right here at the bottom, although Article 12.3 of the National Agreement provides that an employee may be designated a successful bidder no more than six times during the contract period, a national settlement establishes that these restrictions do not apply to the process of opting for vacant assignments. I had a situation where this very thing happened one time. It was odd. It's the only time I've ever had it happen, um, and I had to scratch my head when I heard it. But management actually told the individual and told the steward that, well, they've already opted six times, and they can't go over six times during this contract period. They'll have to wait till the next contract. And um, like many of you, uh, I had to research that. I had to find out. I skipped that portion of my JCAM. But don't let management fool you. Don't let them buffalo you and use that as a deterrent to get you from filing a grievance. You educate yourself, you seek guidance, and you see right here in our JCAM that that's not, that's not true. An employee can opt as many times as he chooses to, as long as he's an eligible employee, as long as he meets that criteria. All right? 
So we went over the eligible employees who can opt. Are there employees who cannot opt? Are there people out there that don't have the right to exercise a hold down or an opt on a vacant assignment? And we'll read that in our JCAM as we keep going, as we turn the page there, page 41-11, probationary employees. Probationary employees cannot opt, but the national parties previously agreed that probationary employees may not opt. But this restriction was modified with the subsequent agreement that CCAs may not opt for the first 60 days. That's big. CCAs come in that are on probation for 90 working days, 120 calendar days, but they do get a unique provision that allows them to opt after their first 60 calendar days. So those individuals in the first 59 days or first 60 days, they're not allowed to opt on a vacant assignment. They must wait till after the 60-day qualifying period. That's a probationary employee. What about light duty employees? Can a light duty employee opt on a vacant assignment? Well, the JCAM addresses this, and the JCAM states on 41-11, an otherwise qualified employee on light duty may not be denied the hold down assignment as long as the employee can perform all the duties of the assignment. So if an individual on light duty cannot perform all the functions of that job assignment, then they would be prohibited from opting. So they must be able to satisfy that they can meet the requirements and, and fulfill that opting vacancy. What about your 204Bs? Can a 204B opt on a vacant assignment? Here in our JCAM, it states on 4111, carriers acting in a 204B supervisory position may not opt for a hold-down position while in a supervisory status. A pre-arbitration settlement established that an employee's supervisory status is determined by the PS Form 1723, which shows the times and dates of an employee's 204B duties. Couple things here. First, if an individual's in your station acting as a 204B, you should already have knowledge of this. You should already know. Because management's what? Management is required to give you a copy of the PS Form 1723, notifying you of their detailed, right? If not, we should have filed a grievance for that. Management has to give us the Form 1723. This is a higher level detail form and it will establish the start date and an ending date of when an individual has been assigned to a supervisor status. And you can already find this knowledge right here on page 41.3. This is what the JCAM has to state about management's required. This is not discretionary. They have to fulfill this right here in 41.1a.2. Form 1723, assignment order, shall be used in detailing letter carriers to temporary supervisor positions, 204Bs. The employer will provide the union at the local level with a copy of Form 1723 showing the beginning and ending date of such details. That word will is mandatory. 
It doesn't give them latitude to, well, we forgot. When an individual comes into your station as a 204B supervisor, management is required to give the union a copy of that PS Form 1723 so we know the duration of their detail. So if you have an individual that's in a 204B status that has a 1723 with a beginning date and an ending date and they try to submit an opt right in the middle of that duration, they do not qualify. Sorry, Mr. 204B, but you're not getting an assignment that should be going to an eligible employee. We'll use that and give that to somebody else. But 204Bs do not qualify. So we've established what employees are and are not eligible to opt. Again, we have the full-time reserve, unassigned full-time regular, part-time flexible PTF employees, and city carrier assistants, the CCAs. That also establishes the pecking order. It'll go to the seniority, the full-time sen senior person, down to the part-time flexible senior person, down to the CCA with the most relative standing. Also, we established that no matter what the reason is for any unassigned regular, can exercise their right to opt on a vacant assignment. They can do it as many times as they want to. We've also established who cannot opt. CCAs within their first 60 days, employees on light duty that will not be able to perform the full duties of that assignment, and a 204B who hasn't made his mind up yet, beloved, and a 204B who's on a detail to a higher level assignment in a supervisory capacity. So now we got the employees who are eligible to opt, but now we got to find out what they can opt on. As we go through this episode, we're going to go down each page of the JCAM in order and break this down. That way we know the exact provisions. We started on 41.9 and we're going to end on 41.16. And don't let this be the only time you read through these provisions. You got to know these from front to back. You got to know everything about opting, eligibility, what they can opt on, the duration, and that'll help you be able to file a very successful grievance. And while we were talking a second ago about employees that are eligible to opt, I want to say this, stewards. Get involved with facilitating an individual who would like to opt. You know, it's not written in our JCAM that an opt assignment has to be in writing, but I certainly recommend it. Um, I think we all know that if a grievance was filed... And the steward come and sat down and said, well, how you doing, Mr. Management? Uh, want to meet on this grievance. Uh, Corey, he wanted to opt on that vacant assignment, and you didn't allow it. And if there's nothing in writing, I think we all know what management's going to say. He never asked me to opt. So help facilitate that, whether you want to be with the individual when they handwrite a written request. It doesn't have to be anything too difficult. It's just a, something as simple as I, Jason Leith, would like to opt on City Route 1 for the duration of letter carrier so-and-so until he returns to duty effective whenever. Take that to management. Have management sign it. Make a copy. I have stewards that have uh, made their own 
uh, typed up version, and it's simply the same thing. Just has uh, spaces to where they can put the individual's name, the maybe the date where it would start, the 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 route that they would like to exercise their hold down on, and they have two spots for the signature of the supervisor, the signature of the steward, and three copies are made to the individual, one to the steward, and one to management. That's just a good matter of record. Again, this is a contract grievance, potential grievance, and so when it comes to filing a grievance and supporting our burden, we want to make sure that we can properly identify without a shadow of a doubt that there was a request to hold down an assignment, and the best way to have that is in writing. All right, so facilitate that, stewards. Get involved. Your CCAs will appreciate it. Uh, you don't have to be overbearing. You could just simply say, hey, I understand you'd like to opt on this assignment and just be involved. They'll appreciate it, I promise. So now we got to talk about what these individuals can opt on. Okay? We know the employees that can opt, but now we got to know what they can opt on. We're going to pick that up on page 41-11, right here under Duty Assignments, eligible for opting vacancies and full-time non-carrier technician assignments okay my station has 18 city routes that's 18 routes that when an anticipated duration of five or more days occurs it becomes eligible for opting carrier technician those t6 strings i'm a carrier technician when I go on vacation, an individual does not have the right to opt or hold down my T6 string. That is fulfilled through Article 25, a higher level detail. Only full-time vacancies, okay? T6 assignments do not fall under Article 41. Vacant routes, all right? What about vacant routes under consideration for reversion? They too qualify. Vacant routes under consideration for reversion are available for opting until they are either two things, reverted or filled, but must have an anticipated vacancy five more days, okay? So if that route that's being considered for reversion, until that decision is made, it then becomes available for an individual, for an eligible employee to exercise their route to opt. As long as that anticipated duration is for five days or more. And since we're talking about five days or more, we need to clarify what consists of five days. A lot of confusion out there. Sometimes I have individuals, they think it means five calendar days. We find on our JCAM, if we keep reading, on over to page 4112, we'll see that National Arbitrator Kerr clarified this. He stated that opting is permitted when vacancies are expected to include five or more work days rather than vacancies that span a period of five calendar days but may have fewer than five days of scheduled work. Now this is an important caveat right here. A lot of management does not know this. They do not think that holidays count as part of the five days. 
they get their fingers out and they start going through, well, Monday's a holiday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday the holiday counts, okay? National Arbitrator Kerr said so. And when a National Arbitrator says it, it is precedent. It's binding. It's contract. That's why it's included. It's important. Both parties negotiated and had this included in our JCAM. That anticipated five days may include a holiday. And that's a step four agreement. New stewards, when you're reading your JCAM and you're going through these provisions and you're reading through duty assignments eligible for opting and you see an M number, that's an interpretive settlement decision that is national precedent setting and binding. That's what this is, M-00237. That's a step four. You're going to want to have that. If you have a grievance and you're investigating and management says, well, no, it didn't meet five days because one of the days was a holiday, then put this step four in. You want this in your case file. It'll be a part of your contract language and step fours that you put in to support your case file. You're going to want that. 237. All right? And since I mentioned case file and filing a grievance and investigating grievances at the end of this episode, I I did have a couple scenarios. There's multiple scenarios. Um, I think I've, uh, hope I've seen about every scenario, but I'm sure there's still some new ones that they'll drum up that we'll have to encounter and go through. But we'll go over some information that will be pertinent for your case file that I think will help you if you're a new steward or an individual that is uh, gaining knowledge on case file building, what you're going to want in your case file. Contract grievances, uh, burden of proof is on the union. We support our burden through information, through documentation, reports, things that we can gain and request from management. That we want to satisfy that burden, that a violation did occur and we can prove it because we have the documentation to say so. So at the end, we'll go through some things. and it, It's not the only information request that you may want to ask for. It, it's a good basis. I'm sure there's things that people are more knowledge about than me that they request, but been very successful with a lot of this information that we use and how we uh, use it to support our position. So I'd like to share that at the end. But again, anytime you see a step four agreement and you are dealing with that situation, put that in your case file. That is money. That means it's already been resolved. And if you're dealing with that same issue, then you got a step four agreement that says they violated it. And that'll be golden when you go to meet. We've talked about what we can opt on, what we need to know, what we cannot opt on. Okay? There's things that we've established. Vacant routes. Routes under reversion. Must have an anticipated duration of five work days or more. Can include a holiday. But what can we not opt on? Right? Temporary vacant carrier technician assignments. We talked about that a moment ago, but it states on 4112, temporarily vacant carrier technician assignments are not filled under the opting provisions of 412B3. That's the full-time regular, the full-time any unassigned regular, part-time flexible, and 2B4. That's the CCAs. Rather, they are higher level assignments filled under the provisions of Article 25. 
So if you're dealing with a carrier technician assignment and you're looking through Article 41 of how they violated it, this ain't it. We got to go to Article 25, right? That's what the JCAM says. That's how those are filled. And it's different than opting in a hold down, okay? What about auxiliary routes? What about that monster 10-hour auxiliary route that's longer than most vacant full-time routes? Can we exercise our contractual right to opt down on an auxiliary route? It's long enough. Some of them. No, we cannot. We cannot opt on auxiliary assignments. It tells us in our JCAM with another step four agreement, okay? This one might not benefit us because if we're trying to establish that we can opt on an auxiliary route, that decision's already been made. But it states right at the top of 4112, Auxiliary assignments routes are not available as hold downs because they are not full time. That key word is full time. All right. We want to make sure that full time vacancies, that's what it told us was eligible to be opt on. Those are duty assignments that are full time that an individual can exercise that right on. What about full time flexible assignments? Can we, it's a full time but we can't opt on it, okay? We can't opt on full-time flexible assignments because they are not bid assignments. And it finishes right there at the top of 4112. That's where we get the contract provision there that full-time flexible positions are not subject to opting because they are not bid assignments, okay? That's critical. We need to know, stewards, who can opt, who can't opt. Duty assignments that we can opt or hold down Duty assignments that we cannot opt or hold down. We need to know the playbook. We need to know the blueprint. Okay? It gives us that. So let's be knowledgeable there, stewards. Let's learn these provisions and have them down. That way, when we go to investigate a grievance, we already know our contract. We know the provisions. We know that management is messed up. And we know how to go about it. All right? Moving on. How do I find out when a hold down's available? Where do I go to get this knowledge? Is it, is it in the break room? Is there a posting somewhere? If it's like my installation, there's not. But when we're talking about how do I find out about a hold down assignment, it's labeled right here on 4112 posting and opting. And it's primarily just broke down to two things. Okay. First, if your installation or your station has an LMOU, it may have been negotiated in at some point in time some structure on how posting and ops will be uh, put out, okay? Again, my installation does not, but we'll talk about the first, the uh, LMOU. And we'll pick it up right here where it says the LMA, LMOU may include method of making known the availability of assignments for opting, method for submission, a cutoff time for submission, and duration of a hold down. But in the absence of an LMOU provision or mutually agreed upon local policy, the bare provisions of Article 41 to be apply. Now, I know when I was new, I heard the word local and 
I had no idea what somebody was talking about. So if you're a new steward and you're trying to gain knowledge and you're listening and you say, what, what's a local memorandum of understanding, an LMOU, contact your branch president and have them send you a copy of your LMOU. That way you know if there's been some negotiations on the things that we just listed. If you get a copy of your LMOU or your discussions with your branch president and he says we don't have anything in our LMOU about posting of, of opting, then the bare provisions apply. Okay? Alright? So if you have an LMOU, which we do not, that has these provisions in there, it may that's what you're going to want to go by. If there's a method of submission and that doesn't happen, you would use this provision right here on 4112. If you have a method of making known the available assignments for opting and that doesn't take place, that's what you grieve. You contend that management violated this provision because they didn't make known the method of submission. And if you have a duration clause, then that's what you would utilize for your grievance. That you have an LMOU, those LMOUs are incorporated via Article 30. But if you have an LMOU that establishes a certain procedure and it doesn't happen, this is what you would refer to. Those installations like mine that go by the bare provisions of Article 41.2b, ops must be learned or available assignments by word of mouth by reviewing scheduling documents. Okay? When I was a CCA, I was hired on in 2010 as a TE. Uh, I converted to the CCA craft or classification. I had my home station, and again, there was 15 other stations that management could send me. I loved my home station. I lived in my vacation calendar as a CCA to gain knowledge of potential upcoming vacancies. That is a key thing that you might want to relay to your CCAs or unassigned regulars, or individuals that may want to exercise their rights to opt to have a little bit of structure. I wanted to be able to establish you know, a decent schedule. I knew it didn't give me all the guarantees of the full-time regular, but it kept me in place. It kept my butt in my station, and that's where I wanted to be. I, I enjoy my station. I have a great station, and I've been there since 2010, all through my career. And so when I was a CCA, I stayed in that vacation calendar. Another form of documentation I would refer you to is the bid awards. If you see an individual that was awarded an assignment that's in your station and it has an effective date, you know Joe just bid on another assignment, Joe's going to be leaving. So that's another opportunity that you might want to relay to individuals that could. They'll appreciate you for it. I always like to tip people off, tip CCAs off in my station. Hey, route over there is going to be vacant for a couple of weeks. If you want, let me know. That's it. No pressure. Let me know. I'll facilitate that for you. We'll get with management, and we'll get you opted on that. And when that anticipated duration occurs, we'll get you on there. But those are two documents that um, there could be more. Uh, but those those two things were relatively common and easy for me to obtain and look at when I was a CCA. Go look at the vacation calendar. When I saw the bid awards and the postings come out, I kept up with those to see if individuals uh, in my station had bid on something else and their assignment would, would become available. Um, 
individual gets hurt. You know, that individual might get hurt on the job, off the job, and they're going to be out for a period of time. Uh, Word of mouth speaks for itself. And that's how you'll find out about opportunities to opt. Okay? Well, now that we've discussed who can opt, what they can opt on, and how do I find out about it, now we got to find out how long am I going to be on this op? How long am I going to be on this assignment? I've had individuals that opted on an assignment, and after about six, seven days, they said, I don't really like this route. Well, there's a problem with that. Be cautious, stewards, okay? Be cautious because employees and management do not have the authority to rewrite the national agreement. That's been already negotiated on. The chief negotiators who orchestrated and facilitated Article 41, that this language is clear and unambiguous and cannot be rewritten. All right? So if you're approached by an employee or management that would like to remove themselves from an opt, and it's not in accordance with our JCAM, we don't have the authority to rewrite that national agreement, okay? So even though an individual opts on an assignment, they get on there for a couple of weeks, they realize that they're not really wanting this assignment anymore, they want to go over here because something else become open, that's not how this works. When they exercise that right, then we're fixing to find out for how long that duration is, okay? It starts on page 4112 there at the bottom. You'll see duration of a hold down. And it's pretty simple. It's not very vague. All right, it's it's very simple. Article 41.2b.5 provides that once an available hold-down position is awarded, the opting employee shall work that duty assignment for its duration. Okay? An opt is not necessarily ended by the end of the service week. Rather, it is ended when the incumbent carrier returns. That means if Mr. Walton's on vacation for two weeks and I exercise my right to opt on his assignment. I'm on that assignment until Mr. Walton comes back and clocks on. Shall work that duty assignment for its duration. Okay? Until the incumbent carrier returns. Don't let management fool you. Don't let management fool you saying, well... The schedule runs through Friday, and so making next week's schedule Saturday through Friday, Corey's going to be back on Monday, so uh, you know we're going to go ahead and remove you from your opt on Friday. Until Mr. Walton walks back in that building, I'm on that duty assignment until that moment, okay? Don't let management fool you. Now, if you have something in your LMOU that we talked about earlier, okay, but the bare provisions of Article 41 state plainly, I'll be on that assignment for its duration. Now, what if Mr. Walton was on vacation? Sorry, Corey, but what if you were on vacation and broke your leg and was going to be out for six additional weeks and you haven't returned to duty? This happened while you was on vacation. Would that opt end at the two weeks that he put in for vacation? No, it would not. Sorry for Corey and your leg, but your assignment's going to be held down for that, by that same individual who exercised his opt in the beginning for that two-week period or until Corey returns. Remember, the incumbent carrier returns to duty. So for however long Corey's out, until that moment when he returns to duty, 
that individual who exercised that right to opt on his assignment is going to be the one to do so. Okay? Now, I told you the duration clause was pretty simple. All right? It, it spelled out for us. You know, for that duration can't be any simpler. So don't be fooled by management. Don't let them try to persuade you into believing something that's not true. Okay? But there are exceptions to the duration clause. We need to know these. We need to be familiar with them. We're going to start on page 41-13. This is what talks about exceptions to the duration clause. There are situations in which carriers temporarily vacate hold-down positions for which they have opted, such as for vacation. Just because an employee has opted on an assignment doesn't mean they lose their right to go on vacation. That individual is still going to go on vacation. And, here's a little caveat too, if that vacation is five or more work days, guess what it creates? It creates another opportunity for an individual to hold down that assignment. So stewards, I know this sounds complex, but this is why it's important to be involved to be knowledgeable about your station, to be knowledgeable about employees that are on hold downs, to facilitate that opportunity for those individuals. That way you're organized, you're doing good housekeeping, and you got all your ducks in a row. Okay? If I've exercised a right to opt on Corey's route while he's on vacation, or he's out with a broke leg, <laughs> sorry, but in the meantime, I have a vacation scheduled, then Marcus over here, if my vacation's five days or more, Marcus has an opportunity, if he's an eligible employee, to exercise the right to hold down my assignment. Now, what happens when I return? Well, when I return, I return back to my hold down assignment, and Marcus will then go back to whatever he was doing. Okay? That's an exception there. We don't lose our hold down just because we go on vacation. Everybody with me? I'm shaking my head yes, like I'm talking to somebody. I'm just talking to this microphone. Uh, I'm going to walk by somebody that's listening to this, and they're just going to be shaking their head at me. So moving on. A CCA's five-day break in service between the 360-day term does not end an opt hold down. A five-day break in service can only create another opt opportunity if it creates a vacancy of five work days. In such case, the opt is for the five-day period of the break. I was a CCA. I was on a long-term opt. Individuals on military duty. I had my five-day break coming up. That was a question I had when I was a CCA. I, I had to seek guidance on this or an explanation because I was wondering, when I come back, do I come back to my opted assignment? And the JCAM plainly states that I do. A CCA that goes on a five-day break that is on a properly awarded hold-down returns to that hold-down if it's still during that duration, that employee, that incumbent carrier hasn't returned to duty. I come back to that opt a hold-down, okay? Now, my five-day break, just like the vacation we were talking about, it creates an opportunity for an individual that would like to satisfy that duty assignment for those five days that I'm on break, Okay, again, good housekeeping, being organized stewards, keeping up with what's going on in your station is critical. We're not trying to run the place. 
We're just trying to make sure it's being run correctly, okay? What about during the duration, an unassigned regular who's on a properly awarded assignment decides to exercise his right to bid, and he's awarded that assignment? What happens to his opt? Well, a national pre-arbitration settlement states established that such an employee must be reassigned to the new assignment, okay? That means an employee, an opting employee, may bid, may obtain a new permanent full-time assignment during a holddown. But it also means that they must, they must be reassigned. Now that works in both ways, okay? Individual exercises their right to bid, and they obtain that new assignment, Management doesn't have the right to not move them to that assignment. They must move that individual to that assignment, okay? And the assignment that he leaves behind could create an opting opportunity for another eligible employee. So be mindful of that. That pre-arbitration settlement establishes that the employee may bid while he's on a hold down, but if he obtains that new route through the bidding process, he must be assigned to it. Management doesn't have the right not to move that employee. What about an employee on a hold-down assignment that accepts a 204B position? That guy. I'm not a management hater, but <laughs> 204Bs I, I'm not too fond of. I'm sorry. I just, Anyways, that's me. What about that 204B that's struggling with the decision on what he wants to do? How about that? What about his assignment that he's opted on? What happens to it? The JCAM plainly states on 41-30 that that employee on a hold-down assignment may accept a temporary supervisory position, 204B. However, the hold-down must be reposted for the duration of the remainder of the original vacancy provided is for five days or more. A carrier who has accepted a 204B detail only retains the right to the hold-down until it is awarded to another letter carrier. That means the employee that has decided to be a 204B supervisor, that management must then repost that assignment as long as it's for five days or more for another individual to be able to opt on it. A carrier that has accepted a 204B detail only retains that hold down until it is awarded to another carrier. That means if day one, when they repost that opportunity and another individual an eligible employee decides they want to opt on that vacancy, it now becomes theirs. It is no longer the 204Bs. Okay? So that 204B that went off to explore a decision and that vacant route is reposted and another individual comes along, it's done. If the 204B's details in and he thinks he gets to come back and go back to his hold down, it's gone. Now I had this situation happen in my station. It was about a year ago, and it deals with involuntary reassignment of a hold down. I had an unassigned regular, and he had exercised his route to opt. He gets a letter. It says, effective in two weeks, on a Saturday, I believe, you're going to be going to another station on City Route 1. I can't really remember. And he come over to me, and he says, hey, uh, they're telling me I got I to gotta go. And so I reached out. Try to facilitate a resolution without having gone through the grievance procedure, but I was told he's going. 
I said, well, okay, well, come on. Because I knew through my J-CAM and through National Arbitrator Mittenthal, which we'll get to in a second, I got a site I want to read for him, and it's in the J-CAM itself. But I knew this has already been ruled on. All right, involuntary reassignment during a holddown. Again, unassigned regular, or even when I was a CCA, I converted to full-time regular, and they assigned me to what's called a residual vacancy, a route that went unsuccessful through the bidding process, and I was on a holddown. What does it state about involuntary reassignment? All right, I want to read to you National Arbitrator Mittenthal. And this is what he states, okay? And if you're dealing with this, I not only utilize this decision in my case file, I like the language so much, I, I plagiarized a little bit. I'm not too proud to tell you that I'll do it. If I like the language from somebody that's way, way smarter than me, I'm going to utilize what they have to say about the subject if I'm dealing with it. National Arbitrator Mittenthal, and this is C number 044 84 and this is what he talks about duration of a hold down assignment when it comes to involuntary reassignment and I'm gonna start this on page three this is his discussions and findings and I know I know Corey's told y'all plenty of times I'm sorry I know readings boring but I, I want to read to you this language this is good if you're dealing with this I hope this right here uh, will, will help you in your endeavors article 41 section 2b5 is clear and unambiguous it provides that an unassigned regular who has used his seniority to opt for a hold-down assignment shall work that duty assignment for its duration. There's that language again from 2B5. It can't be any simpler. Even he says it is clear and unambiguous. These underscored words establish the carrier's right to remain on his hold-down assignment for its duration. That right is unconditional. Nowhere did the party state that a hold-down assignment could be cut short by management exercising its right under Article 41, Section 1A7 to place an unassigned regular on a vacant full-time duty assignment for which there was no bidder. That's exactly what happened in my station. There was a route that went unsuccessful through the bidding process, and they assigned it to the lowest senior unassigned regular. Okay? They were trying to make him go to another route, or they were assigning him to another route. They weren't making him. He was assigned to another route, but he was on a properly awarded hold down. But management told me, it doesn't matter, we're sending him anyway. National Arbitrator Mittenthal goes on to state, The parties wrote Section 2B5 into the National Agreement in 1978, thus giving an unassigned regular the right to remain on a hold-down assignment for its duration. They must have been fully aware of management's right under Section 1A7 to fill certain vacancies with unassigned regulars. Had they meant to limit the carrier's Section 2B5 right, they presumably would have said that the carrier shall work that duty assignment for its duration except where management moves him to a different assignment pursuant to Section 1A7. No such exception was written to Section 1A or 2B or any other part of the national agreement. That's it. That's it. Just like National Arbitrator Mittenthal said, Surely the parties would have put that in the agreement if that was the case. It would have said, except, but it didn't. Unfortunately, management didn't understand that. 
Again, I told you when I approached management with this, they took the authoritative position and said, well, he's going. And I, in my mind, thought, well, that's stupid. When I knew and even showed management in the JCAM what the JCAM had to state. But as you know, we, we can't always fix stupid, unfortunately. But uh, uh, we can damn sure grieve it, though, can't we? So that's what we did. And this individual was back in two weeks with a lot of money. All right. Let's move through. We finished through 41.13, coming back up to the top of 41.14. I, I hope this is coming off uh, decent. Again, I, I told y'all, full disclaimer, I, I don't pretend to be an expert in any of this. I, I've dealt with a lot of it, and a lot of it still comes through hard work and gaining knowledge and, and case file building, but you, you got to be fluent in, in your knowledge of these contract provisions. Please uh, new stewards, read this 41, page 9 through 41-16. It, it is the blueprint. It is our guidelines to the opt-in provisions. So hopefully it's coming off good. Next is the removal from the hold down. And this is where the fun starts, right? We've talked a lot about who qualifies, what they can opt on, the duration of it. How do we find out about them? But uh, now... What are the situations when management can actually remove an individual from their hold-down assignment? I find, uh, I would think almost 90-something percent of the time, they don't do it right. Okay? They just don't. And my best advice to any member of management is always this one sentence right here that we're going to find in this contract provision that is key to me. It is critical. It's my advice, any situation, okay? And when we read this down through here, I'll stop when I get to it, but it, it is the exact definition of how not to violate an opt, okay? Removal from a hold down. There are exceptions to the rule against involuntary removing employees from their hold downs. PTFs and CCAs may be bumped from their hold downs to provide sufficient work for full-time employees. Full-time employees are guaranteed 40 hours of work per service week. Thus, they may be assigned work on routes held by PTFs or CCAs if there is not sufficient work available for them on a particular day. Furthermore, in such situations, the PTFs or CCAs opt is not terminated. Key point. Rather, the PTF or CCA is temporarily bumped on a day-to-day -day basis. This is what I'm telling you right here is critical. This, this sentence, bumping is still a last resort as reflected in step four settlement, which provides this step four is in every case file that I deal with opting because majority of the time it is exactly what they violated. Okay, they did not do it correctly. They always want to say we had to provide eight hours of work for a full-time regular and we use this step four because it states that bumping must be the last resort let's read it what it states it was so important to both parties they included in our jcam i want to include it here a ptf temporarily assigned to a route under article 41 section 2b shall work the duty assignment unless there is no other eight hour assignment available to which a full-time carrier could be assigned a regular carrier may be bumped to work parts or relays of routes to make up full-time assignment. 
Additionally, the route of the hold down to which the PTF opted may be pivoted if there is insufficient work available to provide a full-time carrier with eight hours of work. Okay, but that key statement and that step four is bumping is still a last resort. Okay, you're going to find when you investigate opting grievances, majority of the time that is management's position. What they're going to argue, well, I had to give this individual eight hours of work, so I took part of the CCA's assignment and I gave it to him so he could have eight hours of work. Sounds good. But you know, because you're knowledgeable of your station, that that wasn't the case. But you're also going to investigate this. Do not be buffaloed by management. Don't do that, stewards. Don't let them tell you something and you don't investigate it. If management tells you something and you don't think it's up to par, then you investigate it. They tell you they got something, you tell them you want it. Okay, if they tell you that we had to do something, well, I need to gather some information. And I told you later on when we finish up, we're going to go over this information. But I want these individuals to know that bumping is the last resort. It can't be any clearer than that. Okay, they'll think of a million reasons of why they had to do it, but if bumping wasn't the last resort, then they violated that individual's right to a hold down and must be held accountable for it. And you're going to use that step four. That step four is what you're going to print off, put in your case file, and highlight that and show management right here in the JCAM where it says bumping is the last resort. Moving further down, here's another example of a removal from a hold down. And you need to be knowledgeable about it because it happens. And a lot of times, stewards, i found, um, were not knowledgeable that this could be done under this provision. And there's a step four that goes along with it as well. But it's the bottom paragraph on page 4114. Another exception occurs if the LMOU allows the regular carrier on a route to bump the carrier technician to another route. If you have a LMOU, and again, new stewards, if you're unaware of this, contact your branch president so you can get this, okay? You need to be knowledgeable of your local agreements. My local agreement states that if a regular carrier comes in on his scheduled day off, he can displace the carrier technician if there's another available assignment in his string. But this states that a regular carrier on a route to bump the carrier technician to another route when that regular carrier is on his non-scheduled day to work his or home route. In this particular event, the carrier technician is allowed to displace an employee who has opted on assignment on the, te on the technician string if none of the other routes in his string are available. You don't want to file a frivolous grievance, okay? It's not a popular uh, subject because an opt-in employee automatically thinks, well, no, this is my assignment. The carrier technician can go carry something else. Step 4, M-00154 has already made a decision concerning the subject matter. If the full-time regular comes in and he's going to displace that carrier technician from his bid assignment, management can move that carrier technician to the opted CCA or unassigned or to the eligible employee. That's not a grievance. If that happens, that's just a one-day situation. It doesn't mean he loses his right to a hold down or not. It means for this particular event that management followed the contract correctly and they allowed the carrier technician to bump that CCA or eligible employee from their assignment. 
So be knowledgeable of that. You don't want to be filing frivolous grievances or investigating grievances that aren't there. So we established that number one, bumping is the last resort. And if you apply that to all your grievances and, and through your investigation, those will be the majority of your contentions. You'll constantly be finding things. Well, nope, management could have done this. Nope, management could have done this. And we'll go over a few in a minute, but always remember that that bumping is the last resort. And then that last portion we just talked about with the displacement of the care technician, that they then could be bumped and removed a uh, an eligible employee from their hold down okay all right so what about ptfs and cca's pay status while they're opting what what happens to their pay do they do as a cca if i'm a cca and i decide to place a hold down on Corey's route do, do i get his money uh, i would i would like that ptf and cca pay status and opting Although a PTF or CCA who obtains a hold down must be allowed to work an assignment for the duration of the vacancy, he or she does not assume the pay status of the full-time regular carrier being replaced. So unfortunately, I'm going to still maintain my CCA pay in the absence of Corey while he's gone on vacation. So let's talk about scheduled days and opting. A lot of misconception out there. I, I constantly have a lot of questions from CCAs in my installation about um, their scheduled days when they're on an op. Uh, a lot of confusion out there. Uh, again, it gives an employee a lot of opportunity for stability, a little more structure when they opt on assignment. They they assume those begin tours and, and the regular schedule, but uh, we're going to determine here that there's not a guarantee to those days off. Let's talk about scheduled days and opting. The distinction between the guarantee to work certain scheduled days and the right to specific days off is important. An employee who successfully opts for a hold down assignment is said to be guaranteed the right to work the hours of duty and scheduled days of the regular carrier. It must be noted, however, that days off are assumed only in the sense that a hold down carrier will not work on those days unless otherwise scheduled. In other words, a hold-down carrier is not guaranteed the right to not work on non-scheduled days. Of course, this is the same rule that applies to the assignment's regular carrier, who may, under certain conditions, be required to work on a non-scheduled day. What that's meaning is, if I'm a CCA, again, I'm going to use Corey, and I opt on his assignment, and we have fixed days off in my installation, and his day off is Sunday and Monday, it's a misconception between a lot of new CCAs that they automatically are off on Sunday and Monday. Uh, that they are on an opt and, all right, I ain't working. That ain't happening, okay? It means that if management is going to give them a day off, it must be Sunday or Monday, okay? Does that make sense? It, very important to educate your CCAs, but to also know this. Management does not have the right to swap those SDOs, okay, those scheduled days off. They struggle a lot in my installation. This is what the problem up here is, is a lot of CCAs will opt on assignment with a Saturday-Sunday, and management can't allow them to have both of them off, but they want to change that Saturday to another day. 
and they'll approach the CCA and they'll say, hey, look, sorry, but, you know, Saturday, you know, that's we got a lot of people out on Saturdays, vacation and stuff like that on leave. So we're going to change that Saturday and give you a nice Wednesday. They do not have the right to do that. That is a violation of that individual's opt hold down assignment, okay? Do not let management persuade you that they have the ability to swap the SDOs while that individual is on that opt or hold down, okay? And please educate your CCAs that it does not guarantee them the right to be off on those days. It means if management is going to give them a day off, it is going to be one of those days or should be. And if they don't, you're going to grieve it, okay? And we're going to make them whole for that day that they didn't get to work when they were sitting at home improper, when they should have been in on the regular scheduled day for that duration of that uh, hold down assignment, all right? It's important to understand that scheduled days and opt-in. It's a, a big misconception amongst my CCAs that once they get on that op, man, they've got it made now. Well, we're cruising through here. Been a little lengthy, and I apologize. A lot of reading, a lot of talking and stuff, and it's contract. It, it's, it, it can, I don't want to call it a snooze fest because I'm the one talking, but it, it can get boring. But it, it's pertinent that you understand this information and the knowledgeable of it and uh, so hopefully we've we're starting to achieve that. We're coming down to the to the back stretch though here, and we're on 4116, and this is where it gets good. Okay, once we get into the grievances and we're talking about a violation occurred, what's the remedies for opting? Where the record is clear that a PTF, and I'm sorry, I'm at the top of 4116 remedies and opting. Where the record is clear that a PTF or CCA was the senior available employee exercising a preference of a qualifying vacancy, but was denied the opt-in violation of Article 41.2b.4, an appropriate remedy would be a make-whole remedy, in which the employee would be compensated for the difference between the number of hours actually worked and the number of hours he or she would have worked had the opt been properly awarded. You want to spell that out, okay? You want to spell that out to management, and when you get your information, and when you be able to uh, establish what this individual is out, you want to be able to explain this to management, why they should be made whole, because the JCAM says right here at the top of 4116, an appropriate remedy it be make whole, okay? Making them whole means everything they are out of. If management, if I'm on a hold down assignment that has a normal begin tour of 7 o'clock, an 8-hour end tour would be 15.50, and management approaches me the day before and say, JB, uh, we're looking pretty good tomorrow, so you know why don't you just come on in at 9.30? And we evidence this through information that's requested Management has violated my op because I was not afforded the opportunity to come in and work the number of hours that I would have gotten with my normal begin tour. Okay? The make whole remedy here would be the number of hours I worked versus the number of hours I would have worked had the op been properly honored. So if I come into work at 9.30 and a grievance is filed on my behalf and the steward evidences this to management, I should be compensated for the two and a half hours that I should have been at work on my opt hold down assignment. Hope that makes sense. Like we were talking a minute ago, 
let's say I'm a CCA. I'm opted on Corey's assignment. Okay? I'm the CCA. Corey's on vacation. He has a Sunday Monday off. Management needs me to work on Sunday for Amazon delivery. Monday's a heavy volume day, so they need me to come in on Monday. But they come to me on Tuesday afternoon and say, hey, you know, we need to get you a day off, so tomorrow you just stay at home. Well, that's not the schedule. The schedule is Corey has a fixed day off of Sunday and Monday. That means I should be guaranteed to work those hours on Wednesday. That's part of the regular schedule. And if bumping wasn't the last resort, and I guarantee it wasn't, then I should be made whole for the hours that I was not paid for on that Wednesday. Okay? You'll evidence this through your information at your request and be able to determine that I will be compensated for those eight hours. All right? Management doesn't have the right, it specifically states in the contract, the right to swap those scheduled days off. And a make-whole remedy must be applied. At the beginning of the podcast, I told you uh, the staggering uh, amount of violations that have occurred in my installation um, and, and the monetary award that's been associated with those. Over 22000 That That is amazing. Um, you know, again, I say that that's pathetic. Management not, should not be violating something to the point where it's costing the Postal Service that amount of money. But we got there through a path. It didn't start overnight. So new stewards, individuals listening, um, you know, monetary awards are to not punish management. They are to act as a deterrent. We want to establish contract compliance. We want to ensure that our contract is not going to get violated over and over and over. And we do that through one of the only tools or resources that we have to ask for. And that's money and or leave. Uh, we can ask for management to get training, and they have. That's the sad thing. In my installation, they, they had labor training. It was required through a grievance resolution. And they still have went down this path of noncompliance. But to reach a monetary award, it takes history. Okay? New stewards, reach out to your branch president. Talk to him about the history and the decisions that you have pertaining to opting in your station. If this is a repeated problem and you're wanting to try to establish a monetary award to act as a deterrent to stop this violation, find out what history you have there. I have 16 city stations, so there's 16, 16 stations a day that has an opportunity to create a violation. It happens a, a lot. Uh, I can't remember how many decisions last year, but it was over 200-something You know that they continued to do this. But this started as a $25 monetary award. It went to 50, and then it went to 100, and 150, and that, now we're at 250. And and your place may have something higher, lower. It's not a competition. It's to act as a deterrent to stop management from violating the contract. But this contract provision on 4116, it, it should be used for any contract violation where management continues to egregiously and deliberately, you know, I call it with eyes wide open, knowing they're doing something. 
this contract provision right here, when you when you establish a remedy that you're requesting, and management says, well, why are you trying to do that? Well, we, because we want something to actually to cease. You know, that's all we want. We want it to stop. My brothers and sisters want to want to have a properly awarded hold down, and it'd be honored. But it states right here. <clears throat> In circumstances where the violation is egregious or deliberate. There's two key words right there. Egregious or deliberate. Or after local management has received previous instructional resolutions on the same issue and it appears that a cease and desist remedy is not sufficient to ensure future contract compliance, the parties may wish to consider a further appropriate compensatory remedy to the injured party to emphasize the commitment of the parties to contract compliance. In these circumstances, care should be exercised to ensure that the remedy is corrective and not punitive, providing a full explanation of the basis of the remedy. That's what I'm telling you. When management is knowingly and willfully and uh, the contract says egregious or deliberately violating the contract, the parties may wish to consider. Now, the parties ain't never going to wish to consider. Most of the time, the unions want to consider something to act as a deterrent to stop management blatantly violating our contract. Okay? But you need to be able to explain this, and you explain it through history. We start out with cease and desist. We want management to stop, and we want them to refrain from doing it again. Okay? That's in our remedy, that management be issued a cease and desist, violating Article 41, Section 2 of the National Agreement. And that's what we want, management to stop doing it. But the contract says after multiple attempts or multiple times that management has been issued a cease and desist and it has no effect then we want to request something that will have some effect. We want management to just stop. And in your contentions, you're going to highlight why. And it's never used the word to punish management. We do not want to punish management. Okay? We want to ensure contract compliance. Use the words to act as a deterrent to stop management from violating over and over. Okay, and in your contentions and in your case file, don't just say management has been told numerous times to cease and desist. Put those decisions in your case file. Every case file that you have history, whether it's Article 41 dealing with opt-in or Article 8 with overtime or 1731 information or 15 compliance, whatever it is that you've established a history of cease and desist orders and management continues to violate the same thing, put that history in your file. You never know what file is or is not going to make it to arbitration and you want your advocate to be able to uh, extensively go over the amount of history in your station or installation where we've dealt with this problem. Okay? I, I can't emphasize enough. In case file building, put previous resolutions in your file. If you're unaware, call your formal A representative. I tell individuals all the time, I told y'all earlier, I have great stewards, but they're a steward at one station in an installation of 16. 
and B-team decisions are precedent for my installation, which encompasses those 16 city stations. So they may be unaware of a decision that came out at Station B because they're the steward at Station A. So have great rapport and communication with your formal A representative. Y'all will develop better case files, and then he'll be able to put that history in there as well if you're unknowing about it through via DRT resolutions, okay? I cannot emphasize enough that we want a remedy that's going to stop this. I've told my counterpart, this ain't it. I'm going to get to it. I got a magic number in my mind that when I get to it, I'm going to escalate it. Because I just want it to stop. It's ridiculous. And it's embarrassing to think that we spent the amount of money that goes out the window while they want to rake letter carriers over the coal for seconds for the same thing they don't want to stop doing. So again, when it comes to remedies and opt-in, we want to make the individual whole. Okay, whatever that individual is out of, if he didn't get to come in at the regular scheduled time, we want to make him whole. If he didn't get the appropriate day off that's um, attached to the route, we want to make sure that he's made whole for that missed opportunity of work. Management doesn't have the right to swap those days off. They should be made whole. That key word right there is in your remedy. That such and such be made whole for all lost hours that he or she should have worked. And then if we're pursuing a monetary award under this contract provision where it says the parties may wish to further i'm over here with my hand up i want to consider something i got it high in the air but my counterpart ain't never put his up there and i don't expect him to but i'm going to i want to consider something that will actually work okay i want them to stop it and so if I'm going to add that remedy in my resolution, I'm going to start it off after multiple cease and desist, whatever you and your local formal A or your local branch president want to establish, hey, look, when do you think we should you know, attempt a, for a monetary award? Whatever number of uh, grievance resolutions or decisions that is, start off with something that makes sense, that it doesn't look like you're trying to punish management. You're just simply trying to get them to stop. All right, and hopefully that will act as a deterrent. Hopefully it'll get management's attention that employees that are eligible to opt have a right, that management should honor those ops, that there's a duration to that op, and there's stipulations on how they'll remove them from that op, and they don't have the right to the scheduled days to change those on that opt, and that there's a remedy for a violation, okay? Now, we was talking about earlier... Um, going over a couple scenarios and potential information uh, that you'd like to request. I know this has been a little lengthy. I apologize. Uh, it's contract, a lot of reading. But I did bring a couple scenarios that I wanted to go over, and there's a lot, okay? Uh, and the information that I'm going to give you it is not the be-all, be-all. It's not the, oh, this is the information request, uh, and there's nothing else, or uh, this is the only thing I can ask for. This is a first situation is what I would say would be a individual who was denied the opportunity to opt on assignment. Okay. Uh, again, I'll use Corey. Corey is going to go on vacation for two weeks and I'm a CCA and I, I look at the vacation calendar and I see at the end of the month, Corey's going to go on two weeks vacation. So I submit my op to management. I talk to my steward and we put that up and put that opt-in writing and hand it to management. 
and uh, he just throws it to the wayside. Two weeks comes, I go to start my op, management tells me I'll be carrying something else today. I notify my steward, ask him to file a grievance. Contract cases, the burden of proof is on the union, okay? All right, and we want to support our burden through information that we can request from management. And these are some things that I've found along the way that I benefit from and that I use to put in my file to make contentions against. One of the first things I always request is the tax employee listing report. The tax employee listing report. And if you're a new steward, you need to learn how to analyze clock rings. There's information out there. Matter of fact, I think the NALC even put out a guide at one point in time analyzing the clock ring report, the everything report. Need to be able to understand the heading of a clock ring, the anatomy, the body of the clock ring to be able to go through that. But this first report is the employee listing report. And why I think it's important is it's a complete overview of all the employees that are assigned to your station. I'm going to go through there and I'm going to find Mr. Walton's name and out there to the beside him is going to be a designation activity code D slash A and it's going to say 13-4 because that's going to establish that he's a full-time regular, that he has a full-time regular and it's also going to establish that he has a route. It's going to have a route assigned to his name. So that means his assignment is available and eligible to be opted on. It's also going to have the CCA. It's going to have me on there. I'm going to be showing as 84-4. That qualifies under 41-2B4 that we talked about earlier. Remember, eligibility for opting the employees, 41-2B3, established the full-time and the part-time flexible and 41-2B4 established that the CCAs are a part of uh, the opting and hold down eligible employees. That report is going to help support my burden that I'm eligible to opt and there's an assignment that is eligible to, uh, to be opted on. So I'm going to put that in my file. It's going to be a part of my contentions when I get into that, establishing that, hey, I met this criteria and this assignment met this criteria, okay? Now, what other thing you think might be good to establish that Corey's going on vacation? Well, how about the vacation calendar? That would be great information to request that you're going to want to put in your file, whether you're meeting it informal uh, or, you know, if you can't come to a resolution that this is going to your formal lay, he'll appreciate you for it, I promise. If he gets a file up there with all this information that we're going over, his work is minimal. It has been cut increasingly down to much of nothing because if you get this and this happened and you have this information, his job just become easy. But we're going to get the January and February vacation calendar because Mr. Walton is going on vacation at the end of the month and I'm going to be able to show that he's already been put in, that he's blocked off for two weeks in the vacation calendar. That's going to establish that there was an anticipated duration coming up and that management knew about it. Might want to go ahead and request his PS form 3971. That's his leave slip. That's going to identify that management was knowledgeable of his absence also because they signed it received and they signed it approved. Mr. Walton's on approved annual leave, so I want that PS form 3971 that says you knew. 
his routes eligible to be opted on? I'm an eligible employee. The anticipation was for five more work days or five days of work or more, and I should have been allowed to opt on that. If it's a choice leave, and that was put in at the beginning of the, or the end of the year through a choice leave slip, request that choice leave slip. That was received by management as well and acknowledged. Gonna want my, I'm the CCA, you're gonna want my handwritten or typed hold down request that we submitted to management. Me and the steward both went up to management. We submitted it to him. He signed it. He threw his copy to the side. But my steward has a signed one. If management doesn't want to sign it, me and the steward are both going to write a statement that we submitted it to him, that he was knowledgeable, that I wanted to opt on Corey's route in his absence. But if we have that handwritten or typed hold down request, it's not mandatory. It's not something that you have to do. But I don't do anything with management unless it's in writing. I don't give management anything I don't have a copy of. So if I'm going to submit a request to opt on something, I'm going to do it in writing. I might even do it via email. If the steward happens to know management's email address, I'll email it to him. That I want to opt on Corey's route while he's gone on two weeks vacation. Weekly schedule. Weekly schedule is going to benefit us because management is going to identify that Corey on City Route 1 is gone for two weeks. Or at least a week. And then we'll get the next one if we need. Alright, but it's going to have him on leave for the course of that week. I want to talk to you about when to file a grievance. Okay, if you're a new steward out there uh, trying to figure out how to get this thing rolling and an individual tells you, hey, I want a request, or if I come to you, Mr. Steward, and I say, hey, uh, I submitted my request to hold down Corey's route while he's gone. They told me I wasn't going to be able to do it. When are we going to file that grievance? I need you to get on it. File it today. They told me I ain't, I'm not going to get it. We can't grieve something until something happens. The grievance isn't because they told me I wasn't going to get it. The grievance is when I didn't get it. When the anticipated duration actually occurs. When the vacancy actually took place. Until Corey starts his leave and he doesn't plan on returning until two weeks later... We cannot effectively grieve something until the harm is done. And the harm started on day one when he was on vacation on a regular scheduled day. That's when I should have started my opt hold down assignment. And I was prevented from doing so. So we don't grieve two weeks prior when I approached management with the steward even and told him that I'd like to opt on this, tried to hand him my uh, request to do so, and he kicked it back. That's not the grievance. The grievance is the first regular scheduled day that the anticipated duration actually took place. That's when the violation starts. Also want to consider, you need to request the tax EER for all carriers who worked on that day. Okay? If I come in, Corey has a scheduled day off of Sunday, Monday, so my, uh, my opter hold down should have started on Tuesday morning. Non-scheduled days are not guaranteed. So on Tuesday, I should have came in and started on Corey's route. They didn't afford me to do so. But I want the tax employee everything report for all carriers who worked on that day. Okay? I want to evidence the employees that did work on it. 
I want to be able to uh, indicate what time I was allowed to come in or scheduled to come in and what I'll be out to be made whole. That information, you need to, like I said earlier, you need to be able to analyze a clock ring. Those destination activity code, designation activity codes, that will evidence eligible employees. Also, I want to be able to show that Mr. Walton was put in for leave. That also go to our burden. The daily schedule, PS Form 3997 daily schedule. This will be able to show that another individual was written down in Corey's absence. Not my name, but somebody else's. Now, if they do not allow me to carry Corey's assignment for the whole two weeks, do you file one grievance? Do you file a grievance for each day? each regular scheduled day that I wasn't allowed to carry that opt assignment. Talk to your local formal aid representative about that. Talk to your branch president about that. I can tell you how I do things. Um, it, it Fool me once, I'll say this, won't be fooled again. So I file a grievance every day. I still keep my 14 days, but if on, third, on Tuesday... Uh, then, uh, well, in this case, in my case, uh, if I didn't get to carry my assignment on th uh, Tuesday morning, the steward, uh, I recommend that he file a grievance for that day. He's got two weeks, 14 days to get it ready. On Wednesday, if the same problem keeps occurring each day, file it. And this way, it just doesn't get lost in the wayside that it's covering a period of time and uh, parties that furthermore go not sure. However your local individuals want to do things, however your branch president want to do it, me, I just happen to recommend filing one for each day. There's more information out there, people. There, There's not uh, anything, uh, a laundry list of things that you need, but these things right here that I gave you for an individual that was denied the opportunity to be able to opt or be awarded a hold-down assignment this will help you support your burden. That listing report, it establishes that eligibility. It establishes that route was vacant, and it, or it establishes that route was a, a, an assignment that could be opted on. The vacation calendar establishes our duration that I should have been on. That handwritten request, it acknowledges me wanting to opt on that. Everything that I've given you has an opportunity for you to sit down with management and be able to show them with the language that we went over how they violated it, and then you can present them with your remedy. Again, that's just some things that you could um, request. The second situation is a removal from a hold down, and this is the one that happens most. I don't, I don't have a lot uh, that management just flat out fails to honor an opt assignment. Uh, that's, that's pretty bold and pretty clear cut, but I do have a lot of situations where they remove them. Again, CCAs are uh, predominantly the majority of my grievances, and I think it's because of that control factor, and I, I would like to think we could satisfy a little bit of overtime instead of $250 monetary award um, before we just flat out violate a CCA's rights, but they keep doing it. These are some things, and this is going to go back to that sentence where I tell you bumping is the last resort. Okay, I hope this helps you. I hope it's uh, getting broke down to be simple for you, especially if you're just getting started because I know it can be overwhelming. But if a CCA, and I'm going to use Joe this time, a CCA Joe, 
is on a hold down assignment. We'll use Corey again. He's on vacation. Some of this information we just went over, but there's a few more things I would recommend. But CCA Joe's approached by management, and he's told them that uh, over at Station X, he's needed because uh, they got some carriers that uh, might go into penalty. So they're going to remove him from his hold down and send him across the, across the city to another place. Okay? So me as the steward in this situation, I'm going to start requesting some information to see if bumping was the last resort. Because that is what management is going to have to satisfy to me to establish that it was proper to send him across the city, okay? Again, we'll get that tax employee listing report. It, it has every employee in your station. You'll see all their DA codes, you know, 13-4 uh, is the full-time regulars, 84-4 is your uh, CCAs, 81-3s are your PSCs. You'll see them all, 11-0, 9-0 is your management. Uh, again, 11-0, I believe, is your clerk. So you'll, you'll have a complete list of all the employees in your station. That'll be beneficial, too. The vacation calendar again. We explain why we would want that. We want to go ahead and show that I not only am I on this assignment because they awarded it to me, they just happened to remove me from it one day, but we want to support that it did qualify that criteria of five work days or more. We have the 3971 that supports our burden too. The choice leave slip, if it was a choice vacation uh, uh, submission, we have our handwritten opt-in request, and management has already properly awarded it because I've already carried it for a couple days, and now they removed me to send me to another station. That weekly stay, uh, that weekly schedule. The difference in this one is the weekly schedule is it'll show that Mr. Walton's on leave, but a lot of times management will go ahead and schedule you in on those days. So that's a form of documentation that we can show that you've acknowledged and properly awarded him, and you've even scheduled him to be on this assignment. That's good documentation to put in your file. If you need a statement from the employee, what he was told by management on why he would need to leave and go to another station, I would like to know if it was because, you know, again, was the carrier said they was going to be out for penalty, uh, but what was exactly spoken to him? I think the employee uh, would definitely want to tell you his side of the story. Uh, when to file? You got 14 days from the date he was removed. Okay, stewards, be familiar with your uh, Article 15 requirements. If you're a steward, you got 15, uh, 14 days from the incident date. That means today, uh, 14 days later, you need to be able to meet at informal step eight. Use those 14 days. All right. Don't just Walk in here the next day after Joe got sent to another Station X and slap an 8190 down on the table. You have not done anybody any any justice. You matter of fact, you've uh, you've hurt your formal aid tremendously because now he's going to have to obtain this information. So utilize your uh, your time limits in, uh, in accordance with Article 15. Okay. Now this time I want the tax. Employee Everything Report. This is our official time uh, timekeeping records, our clock rings. This is what we do uh, every day when we make a swipe or even management sometimes make a uh, uh, fixes a clock ring error. But we want the tax employee everything report for the duration of the vacancy, of the, the duration of that op. Because I want to show that management put me on it. 
that it was properly awarded, that my clock ring indicates and evidences that I have made uh, manual entries. I've used my or manual swipes, and I have clocked in to Corey's route. And I've been carrying it, and I've ended to her. I've carried it for its duration, uh, and I, they've properly awarded it to me. And I'll be able to show that it's already been established that I'm on this opt assignment. The 39.97 daily schedule for each day of the duration. I want to be able to show again that each day I was on this assignment. So if I got the daily schedule for each day that I was on that assignment, including the day that I was removed, and a lot of times what that also helped me with is you'll see where management has wrote down that they got a pivot. You know, now that they sent me to another station, they may have to split my last three hours or Joe's last three hours in two. So they'll write that out to the side over there where they put down their pivots. That'll be a form of documentation where you can show that these two individuals uh, finished my assignment. And that's when we get into that bumping is the last resort. Okay? If it wasn't to provide eight hours of work to a full-time regular, then bumping was not the last resort. And when you look at your clock rings and you see the two individuals that finished your assignment that day or Joe's assignment, worked up to almost 10 hours. Well, that wasn't to provide eight hours. When you look at the clock rings, what about individuals that are in there on their scheduled day off? Management may say, well, we got to make sure he gets eight hours today. Are those hours guaranteed to that individual? That's not a part of their regular schedule. So bumping would not be the last resort, okay? That's what you want to evidence through your information that bumping was they were left with no other choice than to remove you from your opt. Okay? And to send you to another station, I can almost guarantee that was not the case. Another report is Doyce Route Carrier Daily Analyst Performance Report. All right. Doyce. Route Carrier Daily Analyst Performance Report. This is a next day report of the previous day. It is an overview of the employees that worked on each assignment. I use this report to be able to show that Joe was on Corey's route, but then we have these other two individuals that are also on that assignment, and it will show how long they were on that assignment because Doyce is uploaded from tax. And that'll be a part of your contentions. And also what's key, and I like to indicate and evidence a lot, at the end of that DOIS report, it'll show actual overtime worked and authorized overtime work. I don't really care about the authorized time. I want to see what actual overtime was used. Okay? I can do that through the clock rings by going through and manually adding all that overtime up. And I can use the Doyce report because if I see 40 hours of overtime used and we sent Joe to another station, I'm going to say bumping wasn't the last resort. Before we sent Joe to another station and let these two carriers carry Joe's assignment, they could have done pivots and overtime on something else to prevent bumping Joe. Whether it was to move him to another assignment in the station, whether it was to send him to another station, there was other alternatives than bumping. 
I really harp on that one sentence that that is the last resort. Uh, management's gotten cute from time to time, and um, I, I, they've told the individuals that carry the portion of the opt assignment uh, not to clock over. You know, that way there's no evidence in, in tax. They tell the individual, just stay on your assignment, don't clock over, and that way it won't show up. Tax will upload into DOIS. You won't show up on the route carry daily performance report. Um, you know, if Joe's clock ring may show that he moved to something else, but they'll have a hard time being able to show that this assignment, you know, there was only an hour left. They won't be able to find it. Well, if bumping wasn't the last resort, and we want to be able to dig up that somebody else carried the rest of this assignment, there's some other report, or there's another report that I've used, and uh, again, this is to your benefit if you if you care to request it. But it's out of DMS. DMS report is called the Street Management Route Summary Report, and you'll ask it for whatever route Corey has. We'll say Route One, and the the beauty of this report is you'll ask them to email it to you because they you have to get it in Excel. But the beauty of this report is it has all your packages in sequential order. It also has what route they were assigned to, has the date, but it also have the EIN, the employee uh, that scanned all these packages. And if we're trying to say that so-and-so had an hour left of his assignment, that's what uh, the CCA informed me of, then we want to be able to show that that actually took place because the individual that did that work was told not to clock over. And that DMS report, when you start scrolling down through there, you'll see, uh, we'll say Joe again, we'll see CCA Joe's EIN, and then we'll come into contact with another one. Well, then we start cross-referencing that and now we got documentation to show that yes somebody else performed work on this assignment along with Joe's statement so that's a very beneficial report um, that you can use for removal from a hold down again uh, bumping is the last resort that is the main thing I always focus on again I'd like to thank uh, Corey for having me come do this uh, uh, this ain't my my wheelhouse people i'm not the gift of gab i feel like it this has been a long one but i hope that was beneficial i hope you can utilize it to your benefit uh stewards uh thank you for the thankless job that you do the former lay representatives i know you're out there and you appreciate the stewards that put in the hard work i know i do i told y'all i have i have some of the best they do great work um but again i hope this uh could be beneficial to you and uh, look forward to the next episode. Thank y'all and y'all have a good one.